Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Achten Millwall. Listening to Achtung Millwall Emergency Broadcasting Special, a public service broadcast made on behalf of the Real Millwall Fan Show and Achtung Millwall, broadcasting from South Bermondsey. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to a special edition of Achtung Millwall um, on the day that Project Restart finally kicks into action. Yes, the Premier League is coming back, listeners, but coming back on the 17th of June. I can't believe the Championship will be far behind. And to review matters generally, I've assembled the a veritable brains trust of Millwall, uh, brain power. Um, in, the, in, the, in the red corner, we have um, that lawyer fella, or as I was is also described, my lawyer, which is very, very flattering indeed, Mr. James Hill of Onside Law and block number five or six, if memory serves, James. All right, five, yeah, five. Welcome to the show, James. And, again. and a new voice, a new voice, dear listeners. Um, Oscar, the hairy journalist, um, Oscar O'Mara, a journo specialising in Watford, Millwall, and public health. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a strange um, cocktail, Oscar. Welcome to the show, mate. Thank you, yeah. Uh, happy to be here, and thank you for inviting me on. Good to have you. Um, chaps, the Premier League is going to restart on June the 17th. Um, and strangely, just before we started recording, I was watching the, um, the, the daily government press conference. Um, well, it was announced that we now just have just short of 38,000 uh, 38, people dead um, since the onset of, of, of the coronavirus. Um, I, I, I find a moral struggle with football returning when we're still... To my mind, at least, in in the in the in a a situation where this this thing is still rampant, I know the numbers are falling. But what, how do you two feel about the return of football as a as a starting point? Um, yeah, I can certainly uh, understand the concerns, and obviously, all stakeholders in the game have have expressed concerns uh, about the returns of play. Be that uh, the players and the various participants of obviously the main. Names of people of a post. You've got N'Golo Kante. You've got um, Troy Deeney, the most high-profile ones. But down to, I think there's 
coaching staff, members of administrative staff have expressed concerns. And then obviously from a public facing perspective in, in the face of what I guess is the worst uh, public health incident we've had in, in a century, then uh, it's completely understandable if members of the public are concerned and feel upset that the return of football may be being prioritised uh, above what is seen as the general health uh, of the public. But I think the, the way to look at it, certainly from football's perspective, is like any other industry, football is is an industry. It employs thousands of people and it's not just the players, I appreciate the players, the management staff are the ones which are earning the majority of the money out of it. But there's people all the way down to the ground staff, the tea lady, whatever, who rely on their livelihoods and want to see it back. And and to that extent, it, it, and obviously Oscar will be able to speak about this in, in more detail, but the extent that football can return in a safe environment, it seems to me there shouldn't be any blocker on, on that happening. Um, there's obviously the financial um, elements from obviously the Premier League in terms of the riches it might lose out on but also the financial blockers which are stopping lower league clubs at non-league league two possibly even league one level from actually being able to afford to restart so there's all sorts of issues that need to be weighed into it but I don't have personally an issue per se provided it can be returned in a, in a, in a safe environment um, which is putting the the, the, the best interests and, and safety of the participants uh, first. I mean, Oscar, we, we spoke on um, the other day on, on Twitter about the safety aspect, which strikes me, as James has just said, safety's got to be first, last and everything, player safety specifically. I mean, I keep reading stuff to say that uh, there's a very low risk for players from contact football, either, and the Bundesliga is obviously up and running. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's a low risk profession in that sense? You can't get rid of the risk. Uh, I personally have a bit of an existential crisis about this at the moment because as awful as it sounds after nearly 400 people have passed away today, it's almost as safe as it can be at this moment in time. And you can only mitigate the risk. You can never remove it during a pandemic. This isn't going away until we find a vaccine. This isn't going away until a large body of people uh, or, or as few people as possible are susceptible. Um, so that's the game that we're playing. And, and for want of a better word or phrase, it's, it's the best that the sport can do right now. I mean, from a footballing perspective, it's great that it's coming back and being able to watch Bundesliga and, and Schalke be dismal and, and being a, a Watford boy, you kind of have an affinity with, with clubs failing and, and everyone, the whole world watching. <laughs> Um, let's not talk about the FA Cup final anytime soon. <laughs> this is a pandemic and there is a risk and it just seems bizarre to be talking about football when thousands and upon hundreds of thousands of people are passing away. It is a money decision. There's, there's no doubt about it. The Premier League is doing the best they can. There are a few bugbears of mine and a few bizarre calls in regards to testing and how they seem to be managing the outbreaks or the potential um, risk of transmission, which seems a bit strange. For example, Public Health England advised that you shouldn't be um, testing positive cases more than once. They're positive. Uh, you don't need to know anything about them. Um, what tests don't do is tell you if you're still infectious. They tell you if you're currently infected. Um, so I, I saw in the media that Adrian Mariapa was going back to the training ground to be tested two days after he'd already been 
tested positive. I don't quite see what the point of that is. And that isn't good for the game. I mean, that, that's creating fear. I totally, I think a lot of people can understand where Troy Deeney's coming from. Um, with a young son with pre-existing health conditions, they are a vulnerable population. He will not even want to put his children at remote risk. Um, and rightly so. However, it's his job. And people are asking him to go back to work. What do you do? Suppose if someone's asking me to go back to my job, and this this is a slightly ludicrous point in the in the football context, but if somebody's asking me to go into my place of work and expecting me to work near other people, then you have, I guess, protective equipment. You have you have formal kind of um, two meter, um, you know. Uh, distances around yourself um, and, and all the rest of it. Um, football's not possible because I watched the Bundesliga game um, that was on the other night and, you know, tackling's full on. Um, it's, it's a proper game of football apart from the fact that you've got a, a, a mural around the ground of fans and, you know, it kind of has a, an impression of a, of, a, of a full stadium. Apart from that, that's a, full, that's a proper game of football with without any of the... Um, protective equipment that you, I, and James would demand as a, as a as a starting point to walk back into our respective offices. Well, well, spare, spare a thought for uh, rugby, where which is suggesting uh, a varied form of the game coming back with potentially no scrums, no rucks, no malls, um, where the sport has to be completely altered in order to make it safe again. So I think, obviously. <laughs> Oscar's referred to to the as low a risk as it can be, but it's fortunately that the nature of the sport lends itself to being able to come back. Whereas if you have a sport like rugby, it's it's almost impossible to come back in a, in a safe world. So I think that sport's called rugby league. You just described there, James. Well, yeah, <laughs> and that's and Oscar and my backgrounds in rugby league as well. So we definitely think it's the better of the two. A sport I enjoy, incidentally, listeners. But there we are. Um, Troy has also said, Jane, uh, Oscar, that the season's integrity has gone. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Troy Deeney, both in terms of the safety, but also in his viewpoint on, um, what should we call it, the competition's integrity. I mean, I, I, to finish it in a different way that it started implies it's a different competition, isn't it? I mean, the, the integrity argument kind of goes out the window for me. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. I feel like this is... Uh, growing discussion about what the future of football looks like not just now but going forward and next season this all comes down to what's acceptable and what's not and that's entirely subjective so Troy will be destroyed uh, and lambasted by by certain clubs Liverpool and Leeds United among many I can imagine who um, would disagree but the reality is when you have a break during a period when you are coming back with, uh, with well, let's think about injuries, for example. Now, Gerard Delefeu had, had a serious injury for Watford. He's not likely to come back anytime soon, but the chance is he could still play before the end of the season. Um, so that's obviously helped Watford in, in that perspective. There'll be other players who would have missed out on the rest of the season, but they'll be returning now. It's, it is an unequal playing field. And for those with larger squads, with, with those... Um, who have greater depth, it's obviously going to help them. They're going to get up to speed a lot quicker. I think it's one of the points that we, we covered in quite a lot of detail on the podcast that we did in terms of sporting integrity. There's so many aspects to it. There's the player contract point, which actually seems to have dissipated a little bit, although the extent to which that picks up nearer to 30th of June, a player saying they don't want to play on, it'll be interesting to see. But all of these points, when you take them into account, it comes back to, to my view, which was, is it even 
the same season in reality. Um, and I think that's a big issue. But unfortunately, certainly at Premier League and, and Championship level, I think the decision's been made and football's coming back, whether you like it or not. And the clubs are signing up to it. But for maybe Hull, who have got their reasons for not wanting the football to come back, that being they've been dropping like a stone since they sold Jared Bowen. Um, but it, it's certainly at the top two tiers, it's coming back. And I don't think anyone's going to complain now if it's, it's seen through to completion because everybody wants that to happen, certainly at those levels. I mean, the takeaway that I took from our conversation, James, I mean, in a nutshell, it was, a, it was an hour's show, but in a nutshell, doing nothing is not really an option and doing something doesn't seem to be much of an option either. So you're just trying to pick your way through the worst or the least worst option. And it's interesting on Twitter before we came on, a lot of people describing it precisely as the least worst option to at least settle it on the field of play by some method or another rather than, you know, points per game or any of the other season avoiding, you know, I mean, do you, do you agree with that Oscar? Settle it on the field at least is better than, algorithmic kind of um, solutions? I know I'm focusing on the Premier League a little bit, but I'd love to know what the Liverpool fans think of the fact that uh, a key proposal in this is that Liverpool will not play any home games. Um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and, and the same for London derbies. I mean, that's for fear of uh, fans congregating. Well, they've shown enough trust, the government has shown enough trust in in the public to comply with with social distancing measures thus far. I mean, what's going to change with football? It, is, it almost feels like an insult to to the intelligence of football fans. That uh, and uh, coming back to the integrity point, how can other clubs therefore have home games if Liverpool can't? If if it's just mind boggling. An interesting point on the home and away concept because I, I haven't got the figures. So I'm speaking very much from. Uh, skim reading one tweet earlier on today but somebody posted that in the Bundesliga the results have tended not to favour the home side at all that the results have favoured the away side for reasons that you, you'd have to delve into I can only imagine that any any sense of home venue um, advantage goes out of the window you know so from the Liverpool point of view, I mean, which and they would probably be one of the clubs who would say our home is our, you know, our, our great weapon, a bit like a, a Millwall, for example. Um, yeah, so that's a huge loss. I mean, um, did I see the police will dictate as to whether clubs can play at their home stadium or a, new, a neutral venue of some sort? Is that true? I, I think that's all to play for. Uh, yeah, I, I think in a, you've, you've captured the, the main argument is that it's going to be a subjective test based on the local police force. And yeah. that's going to vary by police force and by local governments. I mean, I doubt that the um, police commissioner for East Anglia uh, covering Norwich is going to have much say or, or be very popular if he turns around and goes, oh, actually, I don't trust Norwich fans. I'm an Ipswich fan. Uh, you can't play any of your games at home. I mean, any subjective test is going to cause issues. And either everyone plays at home and away or everyone plays at neutral grounds. You can't pick and choose what's the right and wrong solution here. I'm just looking at our Millwall fixtures here, James. I can only see two what I might describe as tasty-ish fixtures, and that's QPR away and Charlton away. I mean, apart from that, I, I wouldn't have thought you'd get too many um, impromptu you know, uh, groupings of Middlesbrough fans outside the den or Blackburn fans outside the den, depending on, I don't know, how, you know, I could be wrong, Derby fans outside the den, but... You know, London Derby games, where's the neutral venue? You're going to play it up north somewhere? I don't know how that, how's that going to work to deter 
people turning up outside. It's a hard one to call, isn't it? Well, I think it, it, it goes to a sort of wider point in terms of the authorities' trust of football fans on the whole. Everybody's been to away days where you're manhandled by the police up in Yorkshire and it's um, not exactly a pleasant experience. And if people <laughs> treated each other with a bit more respect, a bit more disdain, you'd stop possibly the touch points in the first place. Yeah. And it's, I think certainly from this government, I get the impression that they, they find football a, a useful tool when they want it to be and they find it a useful uh, the useful element of society to attack when it suits them as well. So they probably backing football to lift the nation's mood, but it's only a few months after they were hammering footballers as an easy target. So, and I think the same applies to football fans. Yeah, I mean, we uh, we did say off air, listeners, that we try and keep it away from political controversy, so that both um, Oscar and James can remain in employment and carry on providing for their respective families. So, I won't flog that point, but I, I hear what you're saying there, James. Um, the, I mean, the, the the extravaganza of football we're going to see, chaps, is going to be quite something, isn't it? I mean, a, a, a chap called Elliot Hackney's posted a a Saturday through Sunday to Wednesday regime of, of two four games on Saturdays four games on Sundays and then two on a Tuesday evening and two on a Wednesday evening 12 noon 2pm 4pm 6pm 8pm it's going to be non-stop round the clock Premier League um, there's, there's an interesting point out of that which is legal and also um, goes to what the future of football could look like so as I understand there's going to be a relaxing of the Saturday blackout window yeah. So people may or may not be aware that there is a bit of legislation, I think it goes back to the 50s or 60s, effectively saying you are not permitted to show uh, live football on the television between, I think it's 2.30 and 5.30 yeah. on Saturday afternoon. Yep. And also I think there are other times uh, as well. And that's obviously being relaxed to allow this extravaganza of football to take place. But for many years, the, the um, Premier League's broadcast partners have been pushing, and particularly the Premier League have been pushing to get rid of the blackout window on the basis that they've got this product that they want to sell around the world. And they want to be able to show as many games as possible to derive as much income as possible from that. But the basis of the, the blackout is in order to encourage people to actually attend their local teams. Um, we've obviously got the issue um, which gets a lot of airing on on um, on Twitter and the like of armchair season ticket holders and people who've never been to see their team play and they watch it on TV. And there is going to be a balancing act because I think it's undeniable that there is a correlation between the rise of or the availability increasing of football on, that t- on TV, be that Premier League, be that Champions League games and Europa League being split, be that the availability of other leagues and even down to the last couple of years of I follow, leading to a mm. decrease in the attendances at smaller clubs, unfashionable clubs. And could this actually, the scheduling, be a crack or an opportunity for them to get the foot in the door of getting rid of the blackout? And could that have a further knock-on effect in terms of the actual numbers of bums on seats at lower league football going forward? Achtung, Mehlball. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This, this takes us very neatly, James, onto the, what we might call the future of football. You've touched on it already, Oscar. Um, this football's not going to look the same going forwards, boys, is it? I mean, this, this, this thing... Um, who knows how society itself will look going ahead. Maybe we'll only notice the changes four or five years in, in the future, but certainly football will probably feel the impact a lot more quickly. I mean, uh, moving down our, our list of uh, conversation points of the Huddersfield town uh, chairman, um, has gone out on the record and said that 50 or 60 clubs could go bust um, all the way down. I guess that's going to be league one, league two clubs, possibly championship level two, some in some cases. Um, and that will certainly go on into the into the smaller uh, realms of, of the national league and non league, which is the you know the the, the 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 highly valued by most of us, but sadly not by the the elite, the pyramid, the the, the, the crowning glory of English football. It's it's going to be decimated unless vision is shown. I mean, what what do you chaps think of the possibility of there being sufficient vision at the top to preserve some of this this crowning glory? You'd hope that there's foresight. Uh, I'm not sure we've seen evidence of that over the last couple of years. I mean, this was uh, a prime example of being able to plan for the future and, and the Qatar World Cup in 2022 and look ahead and, and not force the issue right now. Uh, in terms of timings, there have been multiple opportunities to support uh, clubs like Berry and, and smaller clubs that, that have sadly uh, been put through the mire. And, and, can you see it happening? No. Would you like to see it happening? Yes. Can fans get involved more with with their clubs and maybe support them? You'd hope so, but should they be expected to when, when we already spend so much money to, to travel up and down the country to support our teams? It's, it's difficult to tell, isn't it? I mean, it, there's an interesting post on Twitter by a chap called Alan Nixon. I don't know if he holds any status in the game or if he's just a random... Uh, poster, but the Premier League being asked to give a, a fund, a fighting fund, or a, a whatever you want to call it, of two hundred million pounds to the EFL, which would equate to ten million pounds per club, um, split six point six per Championship club, one million each for a League One, and six hundred and sixty-six thousand for League Two clubs. Um, issues over these of the parachute packs, but the, the Premier League crucially, and I think this comes back to the vision thing. They want something back out of it. They will not give this money without some control over the format of the game going forwards. They, they want their pound of flesh, don't they? Um, what does that mean? I mean, there's speculation of B-teams, um, you know, um, 
feeder clubs, all sorts of things. I mean, a big part of me rebels inside against the ideas of B, of B teams and feeder clubs, but are we looking at harsh reality where the, the, the patient's dying and it needs a blood transfusion? Are we in that zone? I was going to say, there's been a similar um, discussion recently in, in rugby league whereby uh, the reserve grades were brought back because there just wasn't the the lower league quality um, or, or the scale of teams at, at those levels to kind of produce the players. So uh, the, I think what we've seen in other sports as evidence suggests that if clubs do struggle and they do fold, then B teams are inevitable and either they they become part of the structure or they become a league of their own. James? Um, my personal view is I think B teams, feeder clubs is unlikely. I think it's a, it's a genuine fear, but I think there are a number of reasons why it's unlikely to happen. The first one is I think just the pure amount of public pressure there is going to be such a backlash if it tries to come in, in, into force. They've already discussed it. I think there was a 2014 the FA produced a report on how they can improve the chances of, of England at international level. And one of the suggestions was introduce a league free and allow Premier League teams to put B teams into the pyramid. It was, it was completely shot down. And the public pressure against it at the time, I think, will always continue. I think if you look at the countries that do have B teams, Yes, it works well, but actually those countries don't have a tradition and, and depth of the footballing pyramid that we have and sustain much fewer professional and semi-professional clubs. So I think it works better in those um, in those countries, unlike it would do necessarily in the UK. There's also the point that, um, the, the point that the EFL is a members club and it would need to require the votes of the clubs for that to happen. I don't think there's going to be any appetite uh, amongst the clubs to allow their places to be taken up or, or the league to be expanded to take in basically glorified reserve teams, even if it is for a development purpose. And then it takes on to the point that you made about the, the suggestion that the huge numbers of clubs can go bust. As I understand it, going bust isn't a prerequisite, isn't, isn't the be all and end all when it comes to expulsion from the league. If you suffer an insolvency event or you go under, there is, it's a matter for the member clubs to expel you from the league. And I think clearly, as we're seeing with financial fair play in, in uh, the Football League, I think to the extent the clubs are going bust as a result of the pandemic, I, I would be surprised if other clubs are voting to, to kick members out of the out of the club, so to speak, because that's not, everybody appreciates that this won't be down to bad, to bad management of a club, mismanagement. It's going to be down to the effect of, of coronavirus. So I can't really see that um, being a reason to, to overhaul the structure and, and the clubs that are in, in the Football League at the moment. So I, I just think it's, it's unrealistic. And, and on, on the feeder team point, uh, there's a real competition integrity issue. Um, there's been lots of cases at European level in relation to... Um, clubs which have uh, similar ownership so people will be familiar with the city football group so man city's group which owns a number of feeder clubs around the world well teams were doing this sort of 10 15 years ago and you had 
okay, so I want to say it was Galatasaray and somebody else, but effectively two teams qualified for either the, the, the UEFA, League, UEFA Cup, or as it was then, or the Champions League. And it was found that those two clubs weren't allowed to compete in the same competition because obviously it creates an integrity issue. You can't have two um, teams that are owned by the same people because that person can then say, well, I, w- I want this team to win over that team. And it creates serious issues. And I think Red, uh, Red Bull Leipzig uh, recently, there was an issue with one of, I think it's um, uh, Red Bull Salzburg and Leipzig in European competitions. Obviously, uh, ultimately, they, they're, they're ultimate beneficial owners of the same people. And I think you'd get the same issues with feeder clubs. And that's why when you see feeder clubs being bought, for example, by the City Football Group, Watford are an example of it, and other clubs doing the same. They've got clubs dotted around Europe. And that also comes into the uh, work permit rules. So uh, at the moment, even before Brexit, we've got pretty stringent work permit rules on who's allowed to get a, a visa to come and be a professional athlete in this country, which is based around um, the quality of the player and the number of international appearances that player has made. If they are a non-EU player, weighted as against the, the quality of their country so obviously if you've got 50 caps for brazil it's going to weigh more in your favor than if you've got 50 caps for andorra um <laughs> but it, it, that that's one of the reasons why people are getting um feeder clubs around europe because uh, in other jurisdictions because they've got uh, more relaxed rules in relation to the immigration of professional athletes they can use those as sort of holding ground so you can put a player in belgium for a few years he becomes a top player in belgium gets sufficient number of international caps and then you move him over for a cut price cut price uh, fee over to your team in the premier league and you've got a ready-made star that you've kept effectively within your system for an extended period of time uh, and he's ready ready to go for you that, that is never going to be allowed to fly in the English pyramid. And that's why you're going to see more of the big clubs getting clubs abroad rather than having even strategic partnerships create integrity issues within the English football pyramid. So I don't think that's necessarily a starter. But it may be that I turn out to be completely wrong and they find a way around it. But um, yeah, as a, it's a bit of a long rambling answer. But I see B teams and feeder clubs certainly in our pyramid as a, as a non-starter, but I might be wrong. Never let being completely wrong be a barrier on this show at all, James. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've, built a, I've built a career out of it, mate. Sure, I'm not sure what you've got against Andorra. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a wonderful skiing country, but that makes me sound very middle class. Achtung, Mailball. Gentlemen, we haven't touched on the full subject of promotion, relegation from the Premier League, uh, the Championship League 1, League 2. Um, I understand that the League 2 clubs, in their, in their wisdom, wanted to do away with relegation, from which would affect Stevenage primarily, in, uh, the bottom of League 2 into the National League. The reason for that, as I understand it, and correct me, you boys, if, if you know differently, was that that would establish a principle that the Premier League could Use as a, as, as a means of almost establishing a sealed Premier League competition, then by pointing that the, uh, you know, the, the, the revoking of relegation from the Football League, which obviously no one wants to, no one wants to lose. Yeah, uh, uh, um, fear of contradicting what I said on the podcast last time, out, Nick. Um, I've Don't worry about it. A bit more detail now. <laughs> from from, a, from I've actually looked at the EFL, Premier League, FA rules and regulations, and and it's 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 pretty clear in the EFL regulations. I think this is reflected in the EFL statement that it put out last week about its plans for the conclusion of the season. Is that the top two at the end of the season and the bottom three at the end of any season? Per the table are either promoted 
or relegated. And now the definition of season refers purely to the period of time between the club's first game and its last game. And it's not um, by reference to any number set number of, of league matches. So therefore, to the extent that the clubs vote to conclude season early, the positions um, taken at that point will apply and the top two must be promoted. And a similar principles reflected in broadly the same basis in the Premier League rules and regulations that the bottom three at the end of the season need to be uh, relegated. So that leaves us in a situation where the only real route out of promotion and relegation would be for the Premier League to remove it. And that would take a vote of its shareholders. Now, the FA is a shareholder of the Premier League and it has what's referred to as a golden veto on a number of issues, one of which is promotion and relegation. So therefore, the Premier League cannot um, take away promotion and relegation unless the FA agrees to it. Now, Greg Clark's already indicated that they will veto promotion and relegation. Obviously, an almighty fight will kick off if the Premier League tries to circumvent that. But it's clear that it's going to be difficult for them to get rid of promotion and relegation. Actually, there was a what's referred to as the tripartite agreement that people may have heard referred to, which is one of the founding, not a founding document of the Premier League, but it was a, a, an agreement that was entered into by the Premier League, the Football League and the FA back in the early 90s as a prerequisite of them agreeing for the Premier League to be formed. And that enshrined promotion and relegation in the pyramid. So it's going to be very difficult to take it away. But the point that you make there about the bottom of League 2 is... The EFL can't say, well, we don't want any of our clubs to get um, relegated from the league, but we still want our top two teams in the championship to go to the to the um, to the Premier League. That 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 they, they don't work together. They are contradicting factors, and therefore the EFL needs to keep this threat of relegation from League Two alive, so as not to undermine the claims of likely Leeds and West Brom to, to, to promotion from the league. Here is, is actually timings for the playoffs as well. Um, if we're assuming now's the, the safest period, what, what's it going to look like come end of August when, when Mirwal were, are going to the, the theoretical Wembley uh, for the <laughs> final? Is it, is it going to be on? Uh, I mean, that, that's a whole other ball game, isn't it? Can you, can you void the playoffs or do you just carry them over if we're not able to complete them yeah the the EFL said that the playoffs and this is reflected again in the regulations that the teams in third to six will compete in the playoffs the EFL said there's not going to be an extended playoffs or at least that's their recommendation to the clubs and they're intending to retain the right to say how the board itself how the playoffs are conducted because obviously if you put that into a vote of, of the clubs there could be some some serious personal interest affecting how the the playoffs are concluded. So that will be interesting to see how it plays out. But the feel I'm getting certainly from Championship and Premier League level is that the seasons will be completed. Hopefully they'll, they'll be able to be completed. But certainly in League One where you've got a situation where you've got clubs separated. I think the top eight are separated by eight points and the playoffs are separated by goal difference, I think, at certain points. So the, the threat of not having extended playoffs there is, is certainly a huge issue compared with the clear daylight that there is for the majority of the, the championship top six. Certainly Millwall are mad keen to con- complete the season on the pitch. I mean, I'm just looking at some of our um, Steve Kavanagh's recent statements. I mean, it, it, we're even offering to cover the, the testing costs if, if we get promoted. 
well, the top, the, the promoted science to cover the coronavirus testing. So uh, the Athletic did an interesting article on this where they analysed the ways to complete the season. Actually, Millwall are the only team in the championship that don't have to play anyone in the top nine in our final games. So effectively, we have the easiest run in and we've got two points to make up. Yeah. And if we're playing, certainly in the, the lockdown environment, we're playing teams who are going to be on the beach, so to speak, and won't really probably be trying that hard because of mid-table mediocrity, um, then you would say, in theory, we've got a, a, an easy running, which we should, we should be able to haul in two points. Obviously, that doesn't uh, take into account the fact that we're always crap against crap teams, um, which is probably the biggest factor we need to bear in mind. But um, in theory, we, we should we should have a good run in if we can complete the season, which is probably why we want to keep going and give ourselves a, a shot at promotion. And of course, Hull City. I mean, you, you may not be able to comment on this, James. So, you know, plead the Fifth Amendment, mate, if, if you have to. But Hull City's enthusiasm for um, points per game as a solution to the season is that that leaves them safe in the championship rather than potentially um, falling into the mire of relegation. Um, they're, they're the only the only voice speaking against it, as I understand it. Well, I won't go into what Tranmere have proposed, but if anyone's got a bit of time in their hands, you need at least half an hour and then a sit down in a dark room. They proposed a, a solution for points per game, which is, it has merit, but then it comes back to what we discussed before. How far do you go? They've gone to an extent which is convenient for Tranmere because it doesn't see them getting relegated. But And that's why I think the, the EFL have said we're going to do straight points per game because even though it's not a perfect solution, it takes into account what has actually happened rather than hypotheticals. And when you get into hypotheticals, you can go as, as far as complicated as you want and there's never going to be a perfect scenario. So probably looking at the points per game in terms of what has been played is going to be the fairest. And no one's going to miss Charlton, Luton or Barnsley from the Championship. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's a guaranteed six points every year if Charlton goes. Achtung, Mailball. Just on the integrity point, uh, that I think that's a really, really kind of important argument that needs to keep being presented to the Premier League, who will be pushing for uh, more football and, and um, kind of a greater slice of the pie. But if we just look at La Liga, for an example, um, they've had two significant issues with B teams getting promoted uh, from the uh, Segunda Division. So Valencia in, in 1951-52, their B team was meant to be promoted and got denied. Um, obviously causes a lot of resentment. And, and as recent as 2010-2011, Barcelona B finished third and were meant to be promoted to the top division, but obviously ineligible because of their first team. So that, that's a huge crisis for, for competition. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the third, I've done a few interviews recently with some, some of our ex-Millwall players, but one of the, the constant themes that comes across um, is the need for competition. Young players need to be blooded against the hard realities of League Two, League One football, you learn your trade. I mean, Harry Kane is the great example in, in the world. So there's plenty of others at other clubs too. Um, there's no substitute for learning the game up against players for whom their, their living and livelihood depends on the next result, the next goal, the next tackle. Um, and you can't really get past that, in my opinion. The biggest um, difficulty for me in that respect is that most Premier League clubs see their academies rather than academy prospects as a revenue stream. So there is capital attached to the fact that you have trained at Chelsea's academy or Manchester United's academy. And regardless of your quality as a player, 
if you like, get rid of if you move clubs on a free under the age of 23, I think it is they are going to be entitled to a level of compensation, or if they sell you for a fee, they're going to be able to use that to generate additional income. Um, so a lot of the time, them sending that on loans every six months to various places, it's not really of much interest because they're only going to have one or two star names who are going to come for anyway. If there was going to be a root and branch. Um, mix up of football to try and avoid this situation personally and I know they're already reducing the number of loans in in, in the future but effectively changing the loan rules so clubs can't silo players effectively and hang on to as many as possible rules whereby um, there are no loan fees or um, requirements for loanee clubs to pay for the salary of those players and actually disincentivize the top clubs from hoarding talent and that way it will filter down the pyramid more you're actually going to get a more attractive product down at um championship league one level and i know certainly Millwall and i remember neil harris's days he didn't want to enter into loan deals where he was forced to to pay academy players and he wanted those oh. players to come in on merit well i've seen i've seen loan agreements between premier league clubs and clubs in the football league and they say stuff like you have to play them in X number of games. If you don't play them in X number of games, then we are entitled to charge additional fees. Um, give us and James. Stuff like give us a name. I, I can't, I can't <laughs> give any names, but, but it's basically, it's basically, um, it's, it's making sure that when those players go on loan, they're, they're, they're getting played and it's, this is incentivizing clubs not to play them. And obviously if you're an established pro and a lad comes in from a Premier League club, and he's being slightly in front of you, even though he's doing rubbish. Um, that's going to create disarmament, and that's and that's a further blocker for the for the loan system. So I think that would be a key point in terms of actually uh, affecting the way in which the, the talent's coming through and ensuring there's game time. But obviously, given that it's going to affect these revenue streams that the top clubs have, it's probably going to be a non-starter. When this lockdown's over, when the pubs reopen, Oscar, Oscar and I are going to say James to the pub. We're going to get him pissed and we're going to get all these names off of him. Then, then the, 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 truth, the, the truth will out. But not till then, listeners. Sorry, Oscar, I, I interrupted you, mate. Sorry. No, no, that's right. Well, we, we know Eddie and Ketty. That was, that was one very well-known loanee who, who had it into his um, loanee contract when he went to Leeds United uh, about how many games he should be playing and, and how he should be looked after and, and how he should be even trained. I, I think it was that specific in the end, wasn't it? Um, but it'll be really interesting to see, I suppose this is what we're forgetting, that this won't be a short-term recovery for football. We're no. going to be in the effects of this in, in 20, 30, 40 years' time about the players coming through and how academies are treated. I mean, if we look at how the move towards academies being used as uh, schools and, and basically you reside there for your nine till five and, and you're playing football in the afternoon, uh, Watford's been developing Harefield Academy for, for quite a few years now and has a strong affiliation with the local community. Um, will they be now even as, a, well, theoretically, they're meant to be a wealthy club. Will they be forced to, to start selling players and having to move away from that model and, and go to a more capitalist and uh, resourceful element of, of loaning out players and, and not holding on to them? I mean, this is going to change football. The biggest threat to them at the moment is Jaden Sancho is a good example, a player who started out at Watford, went to Man City. Man City wanted to offer him a contract, weren't offering him a route through to first team football. He's gone to Borussia Dortmund, who are, who are um, notorious for this. They've turned him into one of the world's best wingers. And now you've got clubs like Chelsea looking to buy him back, buy him 
back to the UK, that is, um, for, for huge amounts of money. And when clubs start seeing that, actually, if we're not giving the route through to first team to these players and they're going abroad and it's the, the um, German clubs or the Spanish clubs or the French clubs who are getting all the profit out of these players, then we have to start thinking again about how they actually create that pathway. And even a player like Jaden Sancho, as talented as he was when he left uh, Man City, which I think in any event was a fee, a player like that, the compensation that they're going to go for at a tribunal is not going to be anywhere near the transfer fee that could be achieved. So clubs have got, at that level, certainly got a really fine balancing act to, to, to play between giving those players an opportunity and um, ensuring that they don't leave. One thing, I mean, Oscar used a good phrase there, the wealthy clubs. Um, one thing that has struck me out of this whole um, period is, yes, wealthy clubs in the Premier League, that's for sure. But it's a very strange business model because it's entirely built on TV money. And yes, every club in, in the top flight is a wealthy club in the sense that the income is, is, is huge, but their wage costs often um huger still so you know it's 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 entirely dependent on the the very thin thread of of tv money um it's going to be an interesting future because i was going back to um you know behind closed doors which seems to work in the bundesliga i don't know what the viewing figures are like for bt i wouldn't have thought terribly high um i don't know i've got nothing to base that on other than my own instinct but it's going to be interesting to see exactly how many viewers actually tune in for the behind closed doors Burnley playing Sheffield United or some or no disrespect to Watford Oscar that Watford taking on a, a Bournemouth or somebody you know yeah I think how we consume football will will change I mean we're already seeing that with social media and how BT have provided uh their eight minute clips on on Twitter and if you don't have BT you you live for them on Champions League nights. Uh, I think we see something similar um, as as kind of clubs come back and, and well, we're already seeing a, a, a different weight distribution in terms of how, how fans consume football. The younger people obviously getting more into esports and and FIFA yeah, um, yeah. compared to the older the older gentlemen or, or um, women who were to actually afford. Oscar, Oscar was looking at me when he said that, listeners. <laughs> Trying not to make eye contact. Uh, <laughs> but it's true, it's true. You know, these kids, kids don't think about football in the same way. I'm just looking at the story, moving the conversation forward a, a touch, about um, next season. You know, we're talking about how we're closing this season. There's also the idea that we're going to have next season who knows when? I, I saw um, someone talking about August, September starting 2021. Um, no, no spectators in the Premier League or Championship, I guess, or, or socially distant stands. You know, it's this. This. This is. This is an ongoing storyline that's not, not not anywhere near. Um, you know, the final chapter yet, is it? I love the idea of socially distant stands as well. When Block one, this course. And you go to the person next to you and you just have to run a little bit further than normal. Uh, <laughs> with a big in your hand. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful image. Uh, but yeah, I suppose people are trying to get creative. Um, and I suppose we won't know until until we know. But what that looks like, I suppose, is is anyone's guess at this point in time. We're unlikely to have fans at the beginning of the season. It might change partway through. Again, you're going to have more issues of integrity going forward. Um, in regards to how how we we therefore see those seasons and mm -hmm. and whether they're cut short with with the 
another second wave or, or a third wave or even if our changes i mean we're about to go into the flu season i don't want to keep going back to to the pandemic but we're, when there's enough public health on here oscar <laughs> i know i know i'm sorry, I'm sorry. We're not oh, this is why i brought you in <laughs> move on to james let's talk about that <laughs> <laughs> but I've never heard anyone say they want to talk about law before. More law. <laughs> what about salary caps? Do we? I mean, just maybe just briefly. It's a big subject, I guess. So we don't want to um, overdo do it. But I mean, do you think that's a way of um, survival? Uh, is it a realistic thing to impose? Can it be enforced? I suppose the lower down the league yeah, goes better. I I was involved in probably going to blow my own trumpet here a little bit and then probably shoot myself down. I was involved in probably the biggest sports law case of last year, which was the Saracens salary cap um, okay. investigation. So for anyone who wasn't aware of that, Saracens, the champions of England and Europe rugby, were uh, accused of breaching the salary cap. Um, the uh, outcome of that was that they had and as a consequence they received a significant uh, points deduction which ultimately has seen them relegated to the league below but the findings in that case um, were essentially that <laughs> Saracens attempted to challenge the salary cap on the basis that it was anti-competitive okay. as a matter of in English and EU law um, because it is restrictive on the ability for players to earn a wage and I won't go into competition law because it's very complicated and even I don't really understand it particularly well um, but it was found that because Saracens had agreed to abide by the salary cap and they voted it through and effectively they couldn't show that it, it resulted in players well it didn't create a competitive imbalance because the Saracens kept winning the equivalent of the Rugby's Champions League. It didn't have the effects uh, affecting their quality as a team, and therefore it wasn't deemed to be anti-competitive. So I think to the extent that clubs at League One, League Two vote to impose a salary cap, I think it's going to be difficult for clubs to challenge that. The, 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 the issue comes into play where you've got a governing body or let's say UEFA putting in a blanket rule saying effectively you have to do this and people are opposed to it that's where there's going to be more of an issue and I think from everything I've read there's a real appetite at League One and Two level to impose a salary cap and I think it's probably going to come in I think it's going to as I understand it the suggestion is it's going to be a hard cap so what I mean by that is there's going to be like a ceiling on what a club can spend but no um no limit on what you could spend in respect of individual players but it, that, that's all i've heard so far it may be that it's weighted slightly um for clubs incomes because if you're a bigger club earning more money and can afford to pay more you should from a market perspective be entitled to do so but i can't see anything like that being put in place at championship and uh, premier league level mainly because of um, TV money and if, if you look at the um, wage to turnover ratios of most Premier League clubs a lot of them are actually um, fairly reasonable compared with championship level and, and League 1 and League 2 level uh, and secondly I think if you look at the clubs mostly in Premier League and um, the Championship there's not really as I see any huge risk of a lot of them going bust because they are backed by mostly by billionaires mm -hmm. it's when you're getting down to your 
Accrington Stanleys, your Northampton towns, these people who are owned by wealthy by our standards, but not hugely ridiculous. Mega, mega rich, yeah. yeah. Where actually they will get to the point where they can't afford to, um, to keep funding uh, their clubs and they'll go bust. But you know, I, I can't see a Liverpool going bust. Um, so different rules need to apply and different approaches need to apply. So I, I, I think I think there's a, a good chance that salary cap will be imposed at the lower levels, but I certainly can't see it happening at the higher levels. You're just making enemies uh, today, James, aren't you? First Andorra, now at Quinton Stanley in Northampton. What have they done to you? That's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I live for. <laughs> a divisive character. Salary caps, I mean, there's this expression of lawyer's dream, a salary cap sounds like an accountant's dream, doesn't it? Trying to find um, areas of spending that are not necessarily wages. But anyway, I'm, I'm no accountant by anyone's. But there'll be, there'll be ways around that as well. Oh, I mean, there's, just... there's, no, yeah, there's, there's no perfect solution to this. I mean, they, they introduce a salary cap in rugby league and all you do is end up employing the player's wife in the club <laughs> shop who never turns out to work but manages to earn 100k. So, you know, I mean, it's a wonderful idea people will find a way around it and finally boys it's been a great conversation but i thought we'd we'd, um we'd close out i'm going to pass on uefa's idea of a conference euro conference league because there's not enough football in this world at the moment is there so they want yet more meaningless european competition i thought we'll we'll pass on that um west ham and apparently the national rugby league in australia and i understand also now denmark are having Zoom call, their, their fans are Zooming in, in-game Zoom calls. Um, how do you feel about Zoom calls or, or, or these um, murals around the side of stadiums? Or would you rather just see, like, we, we, we've, we've had this for years, Oscar, at the band, because we, we had one end of the, of, the, of the stadium that's always been empty and it's just had a, like a, a, a dog-eared-looking banner proclaiming something or other. Um, but we've never gone down the Zoom route. So how do you feel about Zoom as a possible solution to crowds? <laughs> just going to, I mean, as, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go back against what I said about the, the intelligence of some football fans. You're going to get streakers, aren't you? You're going to get people walking in. Oh, z- uh, <laughs> I mean, the things you're going to see on those Zoom calls. I didn't tune into Parramatta's game uh, this morning, technically tonight in Australia in the NOL. But can you imagine that? I mean, the things people are going to put up thinking that they're uh, unaccountable and no one's going to see it. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> let's, let's, let's put it this way. A friend of mine sent me something on, on Twitter. Um, I think it was Borussia Mönchengladbach allowed you to upload a photo of yourself so you could go in the crowd. <laughs> and he sent me a screenshot of somebody who had uploaded a photo of Harold Shipman to go into the, um, the, the Mönchengladbach crowd. So, yeah, it's, it, could, it could be a PR disaster. But, um, I, I, I understand the sentiment, but, um, yeah, it's probably... Um, probably going to backfire particularly if it's going to be a live call when you've got somebody tearing it tearing into a player and telling them they're useless well i guess that would make it more authentic the mural it would do yeah i just just trying to picture the mural mural what that would include but let's not go there boys because it's been a great conversation i think we've whipped through our agenda quite nicely um i looked at it at the start of the night we've got a lot to get through but i think we've done a job on that we should do this more often james and oscar and it's been good fun Thank you for coming on the show, boys. It's been it's been great. Arriva Dirty Millwall. Achtung Millwall and the Real Millwall Fan Show are the number one Millwall podcast, and we want to hear from you. So get in touch with us. Let us know your thoughts, your views, your rants about all things Millwall. We've got email 
achtungmillwall at gmail.com. All one word, achtungmillwall at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us and leave us a voicemail on 0208 144 0232. That's 0208 144 0232. Leave us a voicemail. No human will be involved in the receipt of your message. So give us a shout. Tell us what you think about all things Millwall. And the best messages will be read out on air. Achtung, Mehlball. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.